Jonah chapter 1. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to join us here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you have given thought to us. We thank you that you have pursued us. And for many of us, you have found us. We celebrate and delight that you are a God of salvation. And Father, as we turn our attention to this book for a number of weeks, we ask that you would work in us. Many of us are familiar with these words, but Father, we know that your word is living and active. So let it be fresh to our hearts. I pray specifically that tonight you would convict us by your spirit, that we would leave with a new sense of awe, fearing the danger of sin, and in awe of the majesty of God. Please accomplish this for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we are going to begin a five-week five series in this well-known and beloved book of Jonah. I'm tempted to say it's a book that needs no introduction because it contains one of the most extraordinary, some of the most extraordinary stories in all the Bible. It's a historical account of a disobedient prophet named Jonah who is swallowed by a great fish and lives to tell about it. Now, for those of us who have grown up in church, we hear that, we're like, oh yeah, Jonah swallowed by a fish. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Yeah. But for those of us who believe in a God who controls all things, this is not a stretch for us, is it? If he can raise Jesus from the dead then he can tell fish what to do and worms where to go. And we will see that in this exciting chapter. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm trying very hard to take about a chapter a week. This is not easy for me. And tonight, I've already failed. But after that, we will try very hard to take <laughs> a chapter a week. And, but that doesn't leave a lot of time for introduction. So we're not going to do a ton of that. But a couple points. You, you'll notice I mentioned this is a historical account. And I believe it's important to note that, that, that we recognize that these events actually took place. There are many, perhaps friends of ours, who might say that, 
Well, you know, Jonah is true, but it's true in the way, you know, the prodigal son is true. It's, it's an allegory or, or a parable. These, these stories are just too fantastic to believe. And Jesus doesn't allow that sort of approach, does he, right? You Perhaps you'll remember that Jesus pointed to Jonah's ministry as a sign for the current generation. He pointed to the people of Nineveh as an actual people who actually repented that they would rise up and condemn the current nation of Israel for their failure to do so. And of course we have Jonah the man. We should think about Jonah the man. He, he is uh, of course a prominent figure in this book which has his namesake. And, and we don't know a whole lot about Jonah other than what is included here. Uh, we know that he's identified as a prophet, right? One who is called by God to speak for God, to function as something of a mouthpiece for the Lord. Prophets say what the Lord says, and they, well, they are designed to do what the Lord says do. But Jonah, Jonah had a hard time with that, didn't he? Right? Uh, we'll, we'll see that. But up until this infamous low in his career, Jonah seems to have been a very faithful prophet. The only other time that he's mentioned in the Old Testament is in 2 Kings. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 14, where the scriptures identify Jonah as a servant of the Lord. It's a favorable, it's a positive language, a, a positive descriptor. And so I think we could reasonably conclude that Jonah was a faithful, fruitful servant of the Lord. But that brings us to a second point of introduction. I think it would be helpful to, to just go ahead and say from the beginning that as we are thinking about this book, and I would encourage you to read it in your own time at home, to recognize what the book of Jonah is about. What it's about. We need to say that it is not primarily about a big fish. It's not primarily about what perhaps might be a whale. And it's really not even primarily about Jonah. That is, it's not primarily a a character study of what to do when swallowed by a fish, right? I suppose we could learn, (laughs) pray. (laughs) Um, Or or, or what not to do. That's not the main, there's certainly lessons there because Jonah and his character, I mean, he is the, he's a major feature uh, in, in this book for sure, but he's not the leading character. He's not the leading character. The book of Jonah is not primarily about a big fish or a screw up prophet. It is primarily about the character of God. And I hope that that is clear to you My prayer for this series is that the jaws of our heart would drop open as we consider the sovereignty of God. We will see a God who is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over storms, over waves, over fish, over plants, even over worms. He's sovereign over cities of sinners. He speaks storms cease. He speaks, fish swallow. He speaks, fish vomit. He speaks, plants grow. He speaks, worms eat plants. He speaks to the hearts of kings, and they repent. His word has power. My prayer is also that we would be stunned by 
the justice of God. We'll see in this book that God is a God who sees sin. And he cannot leave it unpunished. He is not mocked either by pagans or by his own people. You cannot escape from his justice. And you cannot board a ship beyond the borders of his dominion. God is just in all his ways. So sinners, be warned. Unless you repent, disaster from the Lord will surely fall upon you. We see clearly we cannot mock his justice. And finally, I, I pray that we would be wonderstruck by the mercy, by the sovereign mercy of God. We are going to see God's mercy all over these four chapters. We'll see God show mercy to pagan sailors. We'll see God show sinners uh, the mercy to the sinners of Nineveh. We might even see God show mercy to the cattle in Nineveh. See the last verse. All right? We'll see God be merciful to Jonah in so many ways. He mercifully pursues him. He disciplines him. He rescues him. He redeems him. He even gives him shade when he is hot. God is merciful. Friends, we need to marvel and adore God for his character. You see, Jonah, one of God's people, he was disenchanted with God's character. He was depressed by the thought of God's mercy. How does one get there? Right? We'll see that in chapter 4. And we do not need to be like Jonah. Rather, we need to not be depressed, but thrilled to discover that God is a gracious God. He's merciful. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And he is relenting of disaster. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Which brings us to our main idea for this evening, which we will see in just these six verses. That all, without exception, have fled from the presence of the Lord. But God pursues. He is like the hound of heaven who delights to pursue and overtake sinners. Let's explore this main idea by considering several lessons. I began with three or four. I don't know how many I ended up with. But so we'll, be, we'll look at several, right? I like that word. Several, several lessons from these six verses. First of all, friends, we need to note that no man can hide his evil from the Lord. No man can hide his evil from the Lord. As I've read and reread the book of Jonah over the last... A week or so. One of the qualities that has stood out to me uh, is this perfect vantage point that God has in this story. He's everywhere, right? He sees it all. He's functioning. He's doing stuff, interesting stuff. And, and he is over all of the drama of this dramatic book. And it's evident from the very beginning of the book. Verse 2, he says, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has what? Come up before me. God does not just see evil in faraway lands, but he sees the evil deeds of his own people. He sees the evil of Nineveh. He sees the evil of the Middle East and of Eastern Asia, but he sees the evil of his people. 
He sees Jonah even as he flees from the presence of the Lord. He sees Jonah in the inner part of the ship. And of course, he sees Jonah in the sea and in the belly of the fish. I always wonder, did he give coordinates to the fish? Did he tell him Jonah will be eight feet underwater? It's just interesting. I've been in an office all day. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they has precision. God sees. I've often reflected how my struggle with sin would change if I was consciously present that God is watching me. Have you thought of that? I live just off old Jonesboro Highway, you know, about a mile and a half from church. And in that mile and a half from here to there, there is a spot on a bridge that the Jonesboro Police Department have favored to spend some time, right? Uh, which is fine for me as a, you know, as a resident. I live close by and I'm, you know, I'm thrilled to see them there. Um, and they don't even try to hide. They just like sit on the side of the road and, you know, it's plenty good enough. But multiple times a week, I pass that mile marker and, and I'll see an officer uh, parked on the bridge right in that 30 or 35 mile per hour zone. And, and I've lived here for four, I've lived in that for about four and a half years and I've observed people go flying down that road unless there's a police car parked there, right? It's amazing, isn't it? I should have gone into sociology, right? Suddenly, they realize they're being watched by someone who matters, and their behavior changes, doesn't it? Because they know that they are being seen. Friends, can I remind you what each of us learned as children, but none of us has learned perfectly? God can see you. The extent of the Father's gaze exceeds the gaze of the Jonesboro police. He sees what is done in the dark. He hears the words muttered under your breath and the words uttered in the car on the way to church before you walk in the door with a big smile on your face, right? His gaze pierces even the secret motives of your heart. It's not just that God sees what you do. He sees what you want. He sees what you love. And he knows why you do what you do. He has an opinion on everything. And the Bible tells us that what he sees when he looks into the hearts of man is remarkably wicked. In my real change class, we've been studying Jeremiah 17, where we read, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? (laughs) Well, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Friends, God is not an idle observer. He's not preoccupied by all the bad people somewhere else. He is watching and he is taking notes. He keeps records. He's storing up wrath for sin, rewards for obedience. And he acts upon what he sees. Friends, we need, even as God's people, especially as God's people, to condition our hearts to this reality. That just because we cannot see God, that does not mean that God cannot see us. Isn't that truth helpful? And isn't it hard to learn? 
Well, Jonah was struggling to learn this. He clearly forgot that God sees, and he embarked on a stormy path of rebellion. But can we learn from his disobedience, or are we doomed to make the same mistake? Well, I'd like to draw your attention to Jonah's recipe for disobedience. I think there are four ingredients. I'm mixing, I'm mixing metaphors a little bit, but it seems like that, that's what it is. Right? It is a recipe for disaster. We'll notice as we notice as we study Jonah's disobeying, we'll, we'll see that the first thing he did was that he turned away from the word of the Lord. Jonah turned from the word of the Lord. Verse 1 begins with this common prophetic formula throughout the Bible that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We've noticed many times God is a good communicator. His word is clear, right? Get up, go to Nineveh. It's very clear, right? Very clear. And it, it placed a responsibility on Jonah. He was to go. We used to stand up. I think God says that to me a lot. Nathan, get up, right? Pay attention. <laughs> He's got to get my attention. Well, he told Jonah, get up, go. And then he said, speak. Speak. What do you think was the problem for Jonah? You wondered? Was Jonah unclear about what he needed to do? Did Jonah lack wisdom? Did he need more knowledge? Did, did he need to find the will of God? Did Jonah need to read a book or learn more? What, what was the problem? Jonah did not like God's word. Period. It was clear. It was direct. It was simple. Jonah just didn't like it. He just did not like it. And so he turned away. He despised God's word. And friends, I think we need to be very clear on this point that as Christians, sin always begins by us despising God's word. Always. Every moment of anger, every tinge of selfishness, every moment of discontentment in our hearts, it always begins with despising God's word. It's always the first step. We either neglect it and don't read it, right? It's, it's amazing to me. How many people, how many Christians have not read the Bible? It's amazing to me. There could be things there that you don't know about, right? Like that, that's amazing, right? We, we, we could despise it and neglect God's word, or more frequently, we know it, we read it, we hear it, we just don't like it, right? We just don't like it. Perhaps, I mean, my goodness, haven't you had that experience in your walk with the Lord? <laughs> you feel like you're just sitting there minding your own business, just trying to do your thing, just trying to have a good time, and it seems like God busts in and ruins your fun, right? Maybe you remember that feeling as a teenager? Felt like that's what God did, right? I can't help but think about an episode of The Office. If you haven't seen it, that's fine, right? Where, just imagine a workplace, Dunder Mifflin, Dunder Mifflin, where all the workers are invited to the party except for the boss, who is annoying, right? Because if you invite the boss to a work party, 
it'll be weird, right? He, if he's there, people won't be able to relax and have fun because the boss is there. And when the boss is with you know, employees, that's what he does. He, he, he's the boss. And so, well, the boss gets wind of it. <laughs> he gets wind of the party and decides to crash the party. And as soon as he gets there, the party dies, right? He is the wet blanket. He, he immediately ruins it. He acts like a boss. Friends, Satan's work is to try to make God seem like the wet blanket, to try to make God's word seem like the wet blanket on your life. That, that God is not looking out for your best interests. That he doesn't want you to have fun. That he, that he doesn't really want you to be happy. Otherwise, why would he make you do hard things? Like go to Nineveh. Right? What an unfun thing to do. Doesn't God know? I don't know where Jonah was. I bet he was comfy. Right? Right? I mean, it, it feels like that that's what God does sometimes. Have you noticed how it's always the most difficult commands that are the easiest to disobey? So I think that we should learn that whenever obedience feels hard, we need to beware, right? We need to beware. Sin always begins by us getting tricked into not believing God's word, to disapproving of it, to thinking it is not good or trustworthy or that it will lead to our happiness. And so we turn away. That's where it always begins. That's where it began to begin for Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, but Jonah rose to flee. Which brings us to the second ingredient in this disaster, right? Jonah not only turned away from the word of the Lord, but he also turned away from the presence of the Lord. We see that in verse 3. I like how my children's, one of our uh, Bible story books puts it. Jonah says, I'll take one ticket to not Nineveh, please. I don't care where, it just can't be Nineveh, right? It's very interesting to me uh, that Jonah didn't just disobey he ran. Isn't that interesting? He didn't just disobey, he ran. Have you ever wondered why? I mean, why did he run? Couldn't he have just like disobeyed and stayed put? <laughs> I've done that plenty of times, right? Couldn't he have just done that? Well, apparently not. You see, you can't choose disobedience without it having an impact on your relationship with the Lord. Ever. For the Christian, sin does not ruin our relationship with God, but it certainly disrupts it. And it disrupted Jonah's life. You see, you cannot enjoy intimacy with God while happily enjoying the sin he so completely hates. Can I just say that again? You cannot enjoy intimacy with God while enjoying the sin he so radically hates. You see, when we are in relationship with God, when we enjoy intimacy and fellowship with him, when we are near to him, one of the things that is so great is that we know that God knows us. The Bible says that he searches us and that he knows us and that intimate knowledge is what makes the relationship so exciting. That he knows us and that he loves us. 
And if we're walking in repentance, that is how we enjoy that relationship. Yes, God is a merciful and gracious God. But his mercy is applied to us as we despise and turn away from sin. Does that mean we don't struggle? Of course not. But the heart of the Christian is continually repenting, continually turning to the Lord. We'll come back to that later. But let's consider a third ingredient here, right? This is the disaster for sin, the, the recipe for the sin disaster that each of us can fall into. But you'll notice that Jonah apparently lost his mind right? He lost his faculties of discernment. Perhaps another way we could put this is to beware of false providences. It's really interesting to me. Once Jonah decided on this path of rebellion, once he decided that the path of rebellion would be more pleasant than the path of obedience, he began to plot his journey. So he headed to Joppa and found himself a ship, right? Now, I'm not exactly sure what was going on in Jonah's heart when he began his journey to Tarshish. I'm really not even entirely sure how to say that word, right? But I don't know if he had made up his mind entirely before he went or if he was still struggling with it as he traveled, but I'd be willing to bet that he felt some sense of relief once he had that boat ticket in hand, right? I've got my ticket out of here. I would imagine it probably encouraged his escape and his efforts. It's interesting because when we are blinded by rebellion, when we are headlong running into sin, we tend to misinterpret our circumstances. Have you ever noticed that? We head to the docks to plot our escape and what do you know? There just so happens to be a ship. One old preacher put it like this. He says, whenever a person decides to run from the Lord, Satan always provides complete transportation facilities. Isn't that true? Friends, just because you think that you have an open door does not mean that God is the one opening the door. Satan is a happy valet on the road to hell. I was having a conversation a while back with a, a gentleman, um, we, and we were talking about some financial problems that he was facing. His marriage was, was ending, and his world was falling apart, and, and one of the practical things we were dealing with was I was encouraging him to be very financially frugal, and he showed up a few days later with a brand new car, and I asked this man, why did you do this? And he told me with a straight face, he said, I went to the dealer and the Lord provided me a good deal. <laughs> I would love to try to sell a car to people. I could sell a car to people like that. I promise you, if you go to the car dealer, the Lord will provide you a good deal and you will come home with a lot of new debt, right? Friends, <laughs> sin makes us crazy. We can interpret situations in all sorts of ways. It, it messes with our thoughts. It distorts what is good and what is beautiful. It is, it is, it, remember, it's like a hook. There's bait 
the bait looks good, but the bait's on a hook. That's what sin does. It disguises what is evil and destructive with something that is good and beautiful. And man, when sin and temptation get our juices flowing, that is not the time to trust your fleshly instincts. Right? When sin, when temptation is hot and raging, that, my friends, is the time more than ever to just cling to the simple word of God. Arise, go to Tarshish, speak out against them. We need to trust his word when temptation rages. Well, these are some of the ingredients for the recipe of sin. But can we think a little bit about the outcome? Isn't it better that we learn from Jonah's running rather than do our running, do some running ourselves? So let's consider the futility of Jonah's flight, the futility of his flight. We've already seen how he got into this big mess, but let's, let's look at what it got him. Once Jonah had set his sights on running from the Lord, we read there in verse 4, some familiar, wonderful words. Maybe not wonderful for Jonah, but you see them in verse 4. But the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. God is intervening with the runaway. Aren't you thankful for that? What a silly thing, though, it is to run from God. I mean, where are you going to go? Right? I know we can sit here and pass judgment on Jonah, but just think with me. Where in God's world are you going to go to get away from God? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence if I ascend into heaven? Well, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, well, you're there. If I take my wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Even there your right hand shall hold me. Where are you going to go? Running from God is a fool's errand. There is no way to escape. I can't help, every time I think about this point, I can't help but think about my experience as a father playing hide-and-go-seek with my children. I think I've shared this with you before. It's not that I'm a know-it-all. It's certainly not that I am uh, all omniscient or all-knowing or, all or anything. It's just that my children are very bad at hiding. I mean, hilariously bad at hiding, especially when they're in that one-year-old, two-year-old age. I mean, they, they, neither, none of them have reached the age to where they can be competitive and hide and go seek, at least not in the house, right? I mean, I think I've told you the story when I was playing with Roman, playing hide and go seek, and, uh, and he, and I counted, I closed my eyes and I opened my eyes and he's standing six feet in front of me on a wall doing this. <laughs> I can still see it. Because he has a significant belly. And so if I didn't see him, I would see the belly and the dinosaur on his belly and the belly that comes through the dinosaur. I mean, I, I, I want to be like, he's trying to hold still. I'm like, buddy, that's pathetic, right? Like you could have, uh, this morning before I left for work, uh, when Roman does his little exercises at Mommy Academy at home, he runs and he gets a mint. 
right? And so he has learned if he just like gets out the crayons, well, then he can say he's done and just go get a mint, right? My kind of boy. Well, this morning he ran, got into the mint, took a handful. <laughs> we, could, we could see him and he'll hear him. There's like a trail of mints uh, all the way out the, uh, out the cabinet. And like he goes to his spot where, he's do, where he does bad things, like the corner of his room behind the chair. We know where it is. We can hear him. He can't even open the mints, right? I mean, it, it's just, it, where are you going to go to hide from God? Where? The whole world is his. I mean, even darkness is light to him. You see, Jonah may have run away from the presence of the Lord, but you can't run away from the omnipresence of the Lord, can you? It's best to just do what he says. Sin is such a silly endeavor, isn't it? You'll also notice from Jonah's predicament the great cost of sin. Because of Jonah's sin, God hurled a storm onto the sea. It was so strong, and with multiple indicators in the text, it's very strong. It almost broke the boat apart. And do you know who else was on that boat? Sailors, right? Other sailors. Just think of this. Here we have pagans suffering because of the disobedience of a Christian. I, I, I can't help. A few months ago, I heard a preacher in another church preach Jonah chapter 1. And he said something that's, I didn't put this in my, I hope I don't, I hope I don't mess it up. He, put, he said something that stuck with me. He said, you know, so often we look at the things happening in our nation and we think, oh, this must be happening because of all the bad people here. What if it's happening because of the church? These pagans were suffering because of Jonah's sin. And friends, that's what happens when we sin. One of the ethics of our culture is that you can do anything you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Well, my experience has been there's nothing like that, right? There is no sin. There are very few sins that don't hurt anyone, right? God has designed us to live in relationship, not in isolation, which means that the consequences of our actions become the consequences experienced by those around us, usually by those we love the most. And yet, we so often live in denial of this, especially in the moment of temptation. I try to picture, when I'm at my best and I'm in temptation, I try to picture the consequences. If I give in to this sin, this is what will happen. This is what will happen to my family. This is what will happen to my children. This is what will happen to my church. This is what will happen to my job. If I can have that clarity, sin loses its appeal, doesn't it? Yeah, we live in denial of this. Yet again, there in verse 2, the Lord says, their evil has come up before the Lord. It's interesting to me that the evil of Nineveh could also be translated disaster. If you have an ESV, you probably have that note somewhere uh, on your text, right? The evil and disaster, they're almost synonyms, which makes sense. Because evil and disaster, go, they go hand in hand. When we commit evil, we can and should expect disaster to be close behind. Every time we choose sin, we are inviting chaos and destruction and mayhem into our lives. 
That's what sin, that's what sin is. It's mayhem. Just think of those mayhem Allstate commercials. Whether mayhem is the screaming toddler in the back seat throwing Cheerios at you, whether it's the loose rug at the top of your stairs or the raccoon in your attic who's already had four babies, or the emotionally compromised teenage girl, all of these are things that are going to lead to disasters in your life requiring good insurance. Friends, sin is the ultimate source of mayhem in our lives. And the problem is, it doesn't just bring mayhem on us, but on the people around us. So let's let the story of Jonah be a lesson for us. Sin always leads us into a storm. Always. Where mayhem reigns. Which is closely connected to the next thing we can learn. Sin never brings peace. Does it? We all shake our head, yet... We don't know this. It never brings peace. I find it interesting that the text is drawing attention to what Jonah is doing during the storm, right? He's down in the boat, asleep. Apparently, Jonah's running from God was exhausting, is wearing him out. Running from God is exhausting, isn't it? Right? You know, have you learned that? Jonah had been on the run from this awful mission that God had ordained for him until finally. Perhaps he had a sense of peace and security, right? Down in the bottom of the ship, to anywhere but not Nineveh, right? He'd done it. He escaped. He got away from God. So now he's asleep. There's a lesson for us here, isn't there? Sin never brings peace. It only brings chaos and misery especially for the Christian. You see, for us, those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, now that we've tasted life in fellowship with God, we will find that when we run from him, when we, when we separate ourselves from communion with God, that the world is not satisfying, is it? You will find yourself quite empty and quite dissatisfied. Oh, and then there's the guilt uh, Christian, surely you know the guilt. I think of David's words of regret while David played the runaway. He said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. First of all, isn't that a mercy of God? I pray this for my children. I pray this for myself. Don't let me be happy in sin. Don't let me be happy in sin or I might not come back. Friends, we should learn from Jonah. Running away from the Lord will always lead us into the storm. It will always leave us without peace. And it will always leave us longing to be fed with the pods eaten by pigs says another famous runaway. There is no lasting peace in sin, big or small. But this should surely leave us asking, is there any hope? What hope do we as sinners have? Is there any hope? I find it ironic 
that the first glimpse of gospel that we get in Jonah comes from the words of the pagans in verse 6. The pagan sailors suggest perhaps Jonah should call out to God for rescue. How do you, you think God needs you in your ministry? No. You think God needs me? No. He can use the mouth of a donkey. He can use the voice of a pagan sailor to speak, to call Jonah back to God. How deeply ironic is it that God's mouthpiece rebelled and so God used pagan sailors to preach to Jonah the prophet? Oh, It's one of the many sovereign ironies in this book, isn't it? Because it fits right into this theme that God pursues sinners. He pursues and he rescues sinners. Friends, we have seen tonight, and I hope that you have sympathized with Jonah and his foolishness. We've seen the insanity of disobedience. We've seen the futility of flight. We've seen the mayhem that sin brings. We all know that we've done it. We all know we're going to probably do it again. So what hope is there? Does this not prime us to see the flagship quality of God's character? That God pursues sinners to show them mercy. What a glorious truth. That's why he's been called the hound of heaven. I mean, just think of the great lengths that God goes to save and to show mercy to sinners. Think of all the things that he included in this story. He's calling worms and fish and boats and sailors and wind and and, and kings. Are all these people involved? Everybody's sinning. Everybody needs mercy. So whether it's mercy on the pagan sailors or the sinners of Nineveh or the so-called saint from Joppa, how gracious is our God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And here, can we not think of Jesus? Who left heaven to come into our chaos. Who was born into our mayhem. Can we not think of the picture of our Lord asleep in the boat while a storm rages on the Sea of Galilee? Can you hear the words of the disciples? Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care? Jesus, don't you care about us? (laughs) Just a few years later, That same Jesus would be hung on a cross. I mean, if that's not the essence of mayhem, I don't know what it is. He would be killed and he would be buried. Not in the belly of the fish, but in a tomb. Like Jonah, he'd come back from the dead. But this Jonah, this better Jonah, obeyed. And it's all because Jesus, unlike Jonah, cares that we are perishing. So he calls for all who would hear to look to him. Do not be afraid. Only have faith. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us a great sense of the danger of sin. I pray, Father, that you would guard us from the temptation of judging others who we perceive to be worse sinners than us. 
Let us instead have the attitude of Paul, who saw himself as the chief of sinners. Oh God, thank you that you pursue us. Thank you that you save us. Help us to speak the words of reconciliation to all who are around us. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.